Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. We're going to start this book. It's right before the book of James. If you've gone to the book of James, you've gone too far. It's after all the T's. Remember, all the T's are in alphabetical order. If you're ever wondering when does Titus come compared to Timothy, um, they're in alphabetical order. And then remember the... Um, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, or Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Galatians, it's girls eat potato chips. So Galatians, yeah, that's how I remember. Um, anyway, it's in Hebrews, before James. The book of Hebrews is an interesting and powerful book. We don't know who the author is, and depends on which commentary you read, they have different ideas. I, I read one commentary, and it was so sure, I mean, it was just certain that this was written by the Apostle Paul, and it gave all kinds of arguments, you know, the usage of the Greek language, the running on of sentences, uh, it's very similar, the phrasing and a lot of the things sounds like some of the Pauline epistles that we have. And then I read another one and said, it can't be Paul because it's a totally different, you know, structure of language. And I don't know the structure of the Greek language. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm reading it after it's been, you know, translated. And so I listened to this guy and he says, no, it's definitely not Paul. It's more likely Luke. Luke, who had the influence of Paul and knows the knowledge of Paul and the language that Paul used. And then another one said, well, Paul wrote it in Hebrew. Luke translated it to Greek, and that's how he got it. And another one said it was Apollos. And so I said, I don't care. Um, <laughs> what is important is that this was being circulated early on in the church. It was written probably before... 70 AD, because there is no mention of the destruction of the temple. There's no mention. Timothy is mentioned in chapter 13, I believe it is. And we know that Timothy was in this time period. And so it's most likely written and started circulating before 70 AD, which is in that first century. And because it was being circulated and because it was widely known and accepted, by a lot of the church fathers, it was taken and put into what we call the canon of scripture. When they were trying to find out in the third century, what is legitimate? What can we trust was written by those who knew what was going on in the early time of the church in that first century? And this book made the cut because of the circulation, the amount of documents, and the time it was written. And so we know it is something that was accepted early on in that first century, and so there's no reason for us not to accept it. Now, we need to know who it's being written to, and the, the title gives it away. Hebrews. It is being written to the Jewish Christians. And the reason this is important is because there was a real struggle for those who had become followers of Christ, but who had grown up in the Jewish faith. There was a struggle to hold on to their traditions. And part of those traditions had to do with sacrifices. And Jesus now fulfilled the sacrifices and completed that aspect of the law. 
He fulfilled the law. And so by them going back to sacrifices, they were saying, in a sense, Jesus, your sacrifice isn't enough. We need to continue. And if you don't understand the context, some of the things he says can be very harsh. You know, there remains no sacrifice. If we don't accept Christ as a sacrifice, are you going to go back to these animals? And that context is going to be very important as we go through the book and understand how difficult it was for them to let go of the traditions that were a part of their lives for generations and generations and generations. And so the author is talking to them, and the theme of the book is Jesus is better. He is superior than the traditions that you were used to. And that is the theme of the entire epistle. He's going to talk about Jesus being better than the angels, Jesus being better than the law and Moses, Jesus being better than the priesthood. All these things are a part of this epistle to try and show those early Jewish believers that this is better. You are moving forward when you accept Christ and it's a good thing to leave your traditions if you're leaving them for something better. And you know how hard it is to break traditions. Most of us aren't as involved in traditions as the Jewish people were. Maybe you've grown up in a church or a certain type of church and they've had a structure for years and years and years and you go someplace else and it's not the same. You know, you go to church and they're playing bagpipes or something and you think, oh my gosh, how can this be? You know, surely, you know, God wouldn't accept bagpipes or, or worse yet, a banjo. You know, um, it's just something you're not used to and, and part of you resists those kinds of things. <laughs> We don't have usually that many traditions, but I, I mean, sometimes those traditions become powerful and hold on to us. Maybe Christmas time, you know, do you eat tamales? Do you eat turkey? Do you eat ham? What do you eat for Christmas? It becomes a tradition. I remember Karina and I went to Thanksgiving one time with some friends of ours. We, we had, I think, three, with just the twins, or did we have, I don't remember if we had just the twins or Daniel, but we went with a friend of ours who had another young boy, I think it was just the twins and their son was young, and we stayed at a cabin. And this cabin, you know, was 10 feet wide, it seemed like, and then straight up two stories. There was just no room in this cabin, and it was freezing outside, and we cooked a Thanksgiving dinner, and our friends cooked it, and they made turkey, and it had, I think, raisins in the stuffing or something like that. And it just... You know, that's wrong. Um, <laughs> my tradition just said, no, no raisins in the stuffing. Why? Because my whole life I've grown up without that, and I didn't like raisins in the stuffing. And so I was opposed to that. Well, imagine, as silly as that is, imagine having your life and the things that you have connected to as far as your faith, the things that are foundational to your belief, and then someone saying, that's done. You don't have to do that anymore how difficult that is for them to let go. And so that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with these Hebrew Christians who are still holding on to their traditions and the author telling them that Christ is superior. And he starts off by laying a foundation that is just incredible of who Jesus is. In verse 1, 
he starts off, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So we know that God has spoken to our forefathers. In the past, he did it. And he did it in various ways. Can you guys think of some ways that he did? Dreams. Remember, Jacob had a dream. He fell asleep and he saw the heavens opened up. Visions. Abraham had a vision. He saw the Lord coming before him. God spoke to them, to Moses in a burning bush. There were a lot of ways that God had revealed himself to them. Even later on, God used the scriptures themselves. Ezra, he was rehearsing the law to the people that was given to Moses is now being used. So God had spoken to the nation of Israel, their forefathers, in various ways. Different times, in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Here's where we get to that first quality of Jesus. He is heir of all things and through him he made the universe. Now, that's a powerful statement because God is speaking to a nation and he gave them different ways to understand his voice through those things that we mentioned. But now he's giving us something that's clearer, something that we could see and identify with even more. He gave us his son. Do you know what it's like to be texting someone and you read the text wrong or the attitude wrong, you know, you're saying, well, hey, you need to get over here and you think they're mad at me or something, you know, because of the exclamation or, or maybe the way it's worded, you just take it the wrong way. It, it's hard to fill in some of the blanks when you're just reading something. But when you're talking to someone, it's a lot clearer because you're able to pick up on the nuances, their gestures. You know, if their face is grimacing or not. You know, you, you know what's happening just by reading the person, by how their voice comes across, if it's angry or if it's calm. It's clearer. And now God is speaking to us through his son. An actual person. It, it's no longer through these dreams and through the writings or through the visions. It's actually through a person. And we see the importance of this. Turn with me to John chapter 5. Gospel of John chapter 5. Jesus talks about this to the Pharisees. Chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 39. As he has been given testimony that who he is, in verse 39, he says, You diligently study the scriptures. That was one of the ways that God spoke to them. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Verse 44 says, How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do you do, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? God spoke to us in the times past. Yeah, he used the scriptures. Do you not know that those scriptures talked about me? says, look, in, I am found in the volume of the book. Jesus is found in the volume of the book. They are that which speaks of him. And this is something that is important to understand because God is bringing the clarity of all he wanted them to understand in the person of Jesus Christ. Now we have a visual representation of who God is, what God is about, what God cares about. You want to know how would God deal with a person who was caught in sin? Well, you can turn to John where he catch the woman caught in adultery is brought before him and see how God deals with that. How would God deal with a foreigner who worships foreign gods? Well, you can go to the woman at the well and see how Jesus dialogues with the Samaritan woman. What does Jesus say about those who steal people's money through taxes? Got to throw that in. It's the 15th. You know, well, you can see what he did with Matthew or see Zacchaeus and how God deals with them through the person of Jesus. In other words, in Jesus, we see how God really is. And now it's fleshed out, if you will. It's something that we can handle and see, like 1 John tells us. It's not just hearsay. It is tangible. And you see, this is powerful because it's much better than just hearing. He is here. And understanding what that means is a powerful thing. As the writer in Hebrews continues, it says that he made, through him, he made the universe. Now that's a powerful statement. Through him, he made the universe. Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we go on, it says, the sun, verse 3, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is declaring very clearly who Jesus is. When it says he is the radiance of God's glory, the word radiance is like when something radiates. It means it's producing something. You see, Jesus isn't the reflection of God's glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. In other words, God's glory is coming from Jesus. It's not just shining on Jesus. It's coming from within him. And then he says, 
He is the exact representation of his being. <coughs> Beautiful words. You know, they would take letters that were important. If some document needed to be sent to an official in another town, they would write the document, they would fold it, they'd put it in an envelope, and then they would pour wax onto the envelope to seal it and to make sure that it was sealed, they would have the signet ring of whoever the governor was or whatever. And that ring had a, a special print on it. And when he would stamp it into the wax, it would leave the impression of the ring so that they would know, oh, that's the governor's ring or the king's ring. We can see his stamp. And that's the image that we have here is Jesus is the stamp God stamped into human flesh. We see the representation of God in Jesus. And from him, the radiant glory comes. He is saying, this is God stamped in the flesh. It's not a created being. It's not a reflection of God. It's not a prophet. It's not an angel, as we're going to see, he talks about later. This is God himself stamped in human flesh. In fact, by him, he created the universe. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. That's to your left. Girls eat potato chips before Thessalonians. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Paul writes, and he says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. See the similarity? The firstborn over all creation, for by him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now ask yourself a question. If he is before all things, he cannot be one of the things created. He is before all things. The idea is he is the originator. He is not a part of the creation. He is before the creation. And by him, all things are held together or consist. And so it's important to understand that he is not a created being. He is before all the things that were created. And the reason this is important is because this gets to the heart and the nature of who Jesus is. And it's an important thing. This isn't just, you know, something that's peripheral. This is essential that Jesus is indeed God. It goes on in verse 19 there, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Again, see all the fullness of God to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So he is before all things. By him all things are held together, and God had given him the fullness in Colossians 2, verse 9, it says, In him, Jesus dwells the fullness of God in bodily form. 
Now, the Jews understood this. So much that in the Pharisees, when Jesus was talking with them in John chapter 10, verses 31 through 33, the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus and he said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They understood. The things that you were saying, because he said, me and my father, we are one. And they said, that's blasphemy. You're making yourself equal to God. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. That's what Paul says here in Colossians, that in him, all the fullness of God dwells. Now, this is important because when you come across some of the cults, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, in particular, the two most common. They believe that Jesus was a created being. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he is an angel. He is a brother to Michael, the archangel. The Mormons believe that he is spirit brother to Lucifer, who was created and is actually a brother to Lucifer that God wanted to send someone down to bring redemption and he asked how they should redeem the man, mankind and God accepted Jesus's version instead of Lucifer's version so Lucifer rebelled that's their view of who Jesus is and you see the scriptures declare the writer of Hebrews Paul says Jesus is God stamped in human flesh he is all God in bodily form and it's powerful words and, and then they'll throw things at us, like here in Colossians, it says, firstborn of all creation. And in Hebrews, we see the word also firstborn that is used. And they say, well, see, if he is born, then he has a beginning. But once again, we need to understand he's writing to the Jewish people. And the idea of birth is not just a chronological thing, but it's a priority or preeminence thing. It's something that involves more than just the time that they were born, but it, it involves how they are looked at. And the best way to give an example is this. In Genesis 41, Ephraim was born after Manasseh. When they were physically born, Manasseh was first. Ephraim was the second one born. But when the blessing was given, it was given to Ephraim to be the more preeminent or the one who would receive God's blessing. And we see that throughout. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, 9, it says, Ephraim is my firstborn. How could he say that? He is the one who I recognize. He is the one who has the priority. He is the one who has my blessing. And so when it says firstborn of all creation or firstborn among many brethren, he's not talking about a chronological kind of birth. He's talking about God's blessing, God's preeminence, God looking at him and saying, that's the one who I approve of. That's what it means. So when someone goes, well, it's the firstborn of all creation. See, he was born. He had a beginning. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Jewish people. This is how they understood the idea of firstborn is the one who's blessed. And so it's not mere chronology. He had a time when he was born. 
It's talking about the authority that is given to him by God himself. And so, here we see that he is the sun, he is radiant, he is the exact representation of God, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Whose powerful word? Jesus' powerful word. Now, it's difficult to wrap our minds around how, how did God create the heavens and the earth and how did Jesus create the heavens and the earth? Because it says, through him. And, you know, we're, we struggle to know exactly what that means. The best example I, I heard that kind of made sense to me is, as God was the architect and Jesus was the contractor. God had the design, this is what we're going to do, and Jesus is the one who fulfilled it. And if you wanted to carry the analogy further, you could say the Holy Spirit was the carpenter. You know, so you got the con or you got the, you know, designer, you've got the contractor, you've got the worker. They're all working together, but God created the heavens and the earth through Jesus by the word of his power. Why is Jesus called the Word in John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The only begotten from God. What, was that a, he is the expression of God in human form. And, and you see, this makes Jesus so important. I mean, my gosh, can we imagine, can we even begin to grasp that God became man and dwelt among us and spoke and people beheld him, people were able to handle him and he was able to represent to us the creator of all that we can see. Wow! You know, you just blow a fuse thinking about that. My mind thinks and thinks and then, you know, just, man, I can't, I can't grasp that fully, but I understand it. His spirit bears witness with my spirit, and I see Jesus, and I am able to see God, the heart of God, to hear the voice of God. And it, it brings chills to me just thinking about it, who he is and what he's done. And by his powerful word, think of the times that Jesus spoke in incredible ways. Lazarus, come forth. To still the waters, peace, be still. And they said, even nature obeys this man. And they were terrified, it said. And you would be too. Some guy said, peace, be still. And the wind just stopped. You'd go, oh my goodness. It would bring godly fear upon you. The power of his word. You see, he was not just a man. This was God in human form. And his words were powerful because of who he was. And what a powerful thing that is. In verse 4 it says, So he became, a mu became as much superior to the angels. And there we're going to see that word superior. Some translations will have it better. But now he's telling about Jesus being much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He is inherited name. He is an heir. He's going to go on and explain why this is important. 
that he is better than the angels. And we need to understand that this was an important recognition for, again, the Jewish people, because they believed that the law was given to Moses through angels. We see a glimpse of that when Stephen was talking to them before he was stoned and martyred. In Acts chapter 7, verse 53, he says, You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. In other words, the law was put into effect by angels, and his reference is back to Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, where he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. And so it's talking about these holy ones. It's talking about angels. And so angels were held in high esteem. They were the ones who helped Moses to bring the law which governed the nation. And so they held it in high esteem. And now he's telling them, Jesus is more superior to the angels. And so the reason he's telling them this or making this distinction is because they put a lot of stock in angels. There are a lot of people who put stock in other things other than Jesus. Some it's angels. Some it might be uh, idols. I mean, there's a lot of things that people put faith in and trust in, but this author is saying, Jesus is better. No matter what it is, Jesus is better. Why? He's God. He's God. He is more superior, and he gives the argument. Verse 5, he says, For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he's going to quote the scripture six times through these verses where he's now talking about Jesus' superiority to the angels. He quotes the Old Testament six times to prove that this is who Jesus is. And so the first one he quotes is from Psalm 2-7. And he says, which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father or have begotten you would be probably a more literal translation. And again, we talk about begotten or that giving birth. This is, you're the one I have chosen. In other words, which of the angels have I said, sit at my right hand, I have chosen you? Anyone think of any angels? No. That's not something that God would do or give to the angels. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son in 2 Samuel 7.14. And again, when God brings his firstborn, there's that word firstborn, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now this is perplexing, because they knew you are to worship God and him alone. So why would God be saying, worship him? You can't do that. That's blasphemy. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone will you serve. They knew that. But then, as he quotes this, he says, which, you know, which of the angels did he say this? You know, let all the angels of God worship him. And that one is taken in Deuteronomy 32, 43. None. And so, how can you worship the Son and how could God tell you to worship the Son if the Son isn't, in fact, divine? 
and it makes it even clearer in the next one. He, he's progressing here. In the next one he says, but about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So the father says to the son, your throne, O God. We have the father calling the son God. He's not saying this about himself. He's saying this to the son, your throne, O God. He's speaking about the son. And he says that his righteousness will be a scepter, that righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. And what a beautiful picture that is. Righteousness, you will reign with righteousness. You know, his argument here is talking about superiority of angels, but here we're getting again a glimpse of who God is. And as he mentions this and he talks about him speaking to the son, and he talks about these things about the son, you got to stop and just think what a beautiful thing it is to know that he is going to reign in righteousness. Because we don't see that very often. We don't see nations reigning in righteousness or people reigning in righteousness. So many times people will wonder, how could God do that? If God is just, how could he allow these things to happen to these children? Or, you know, if those you know, people who have not heard the gospel, who are in, you know, the far reaches in Africa. How could that happen? He will reign in righteousness. It's like when it finally happens and you're there and you see the verdict, you'll be able to say, that was good. You made the right decision. That, that was right. Whatever that decision is. I don't know how he's going to make that decision. He's God. He's got all the information. That's not the problem. It's not a problem for him. What's important for us to know is that he reigns in righteousness. He's going to do what's right. And even though we don't understand it or don't have all the facts, he's going to do what is right. And so he tells them that to the throne, to the son he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. In verse 9 it says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with oil, the oil of joy. Again, he's talking to the son, but he's calling him God. And it's like, well, how can God call the son God? He's God. And I know, it, it, you know, our brains go, well, wait a second. How can, you know, is there more than one God? No, there's one God. But now there's the father and the son, and then there's the Holy Spirit. Are there three gods? No, there's only one God. He is God stamped in the flesh. And even though he is a dif different person, he is still the same God. And, and all our descriptions and trying to understand it will falter. We don't get it completely. I don't understand it. I'm not going to begin to tell you, you know, how it works. You know, I've heard all kinds of illustrations. You know, well, water can be, you know, in liquid form. Uh, it could be in a steam. It could be solid in ice. And it's all still just water. You know, the apple, you've got the peel. <laughs> These are all the books I read when I was, you know, reading to my kids. You know, there's the peel, there's the meat of the apple, and there's the core. It's still just an apple. I mean, all those illustrations just pale in comparison to what God and who God really is and how he has given us just this illustration of the sun coming down for us. In verse 10, he says, he also says, 
In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. And once again, as he makes this quote, and this one is taken from, let me see, EFG, Psalm 102. This one is actually a quote of God himself, but now he is giving it to the Son. He's saying the Son is now fulfilling this role, even though the Psalms talked about Jehovah. And once again, we see that Jesus and God are taking this role and working it together. There's another scripture that is well known that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that scripture is also in Isaiah that at, to you, O Lord, Jehovah, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that you are God. Well, who is it? Is it Jehovah or is it Jesus? It's the same. They don't have an identity crisis. They don't say, hey, you're up. Okay, now it's your turn. Wait, it's my turn, my turn. They know who they are. And they don't have a problem dispersing these things. And so what is said of God is said also of Jesus. He is the expression of God. He is to be worshipped. Only God can be worshipped. When you worship Jesus, you are worshipping God. You're not worshipping another God. You're not worshipping a man. You are worshipping God. He received worship. Thomas fell down and his knees, when he saw him in the resurrected form, and he said, my Lord and my God. He didn't say, my Lord and my, you know, God's servant. He called Jesus God. If Jesus was not God, he should have rebuked Thomas. But he didn't. Instead, he said, blessed are you, Thomas, for you have seen and believed. More blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. You see, he received the worship. Here we're told you are to worship him. The angels were commanded to worship him. He is from the beginning. He has no end. He is given the same authority as God. Verse 13, he kind of brings it to the culmination. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He didn't say that to any of them. So how can he say this? Well, he says it in Psalm 110, verse 1, speaking of the Messiah. Sit at my right hand is a position of authority. When you are seated at the right hand, it means you are the right-hand man. You are on that level with God himself. If Jesus is seated at, seated at the right hand of God, he has the authority of God. Angels worship him. His kingdom lasts forever and ever, and so the point he's making, he's better than the angels. The angels who gave you the law, Jesus is better than them. And you see, the whole purpose of this chapter and what he's trying to do is show that Jesus is superior to the angels who you hold in high esteem. What do we hold in high esteem in regards to God? His creation? We look at the creation in Psalm 19. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. And we think, oh, it's so beautiful. I, I, you know, see the sunset or, you know, see the snow-capped mountains, you know, while it's still not smoggy outside. And we see the creation and we think, oh, this is magnificent. 
he's better. The glory that you see and how you get moved when you see that sunset or you watch the ocean or whatever it is, he's better. He's more magnificent. He is the author. He is the designer. He is the creator. He is the one who has made these things. And so when you see whatever it is that you would think and give glory to, remember, he's better. He deserves more of our devotion, more of our awe. That response that we would have to these things, he deserves it more. In verse 14, he concludes, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So the angels are actually there to serve. The inheritors of salvation, that would be us. And you see, heirs to the throne, that's the position that we've been given. We have been brought into his family. Jesus gave a parable in Matthew 13 about a man who found a treasure in a field. And then he buried the treasure and he went out and he bought the field because this treasure was so valuable. And then he rejoiced because he had now owned the treasure that was in the field. And that was speaking of God and what Jesus did purchasing us. The field being the world. And now him purchasing us so that he now, that's our inheritance. He mentions this also in Colossians, um, no, Ephesians 1.18. Paul says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God's inheritance is in the saints. And see, that's what he's saying here. We're... Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's the saints. Now understand, saints are those who believe in Christ. It's not just those who have passed away. It is those who have faith. It means set apart. So the inheritance of all the saints is us. And the inheritance, the glorious inheritance is found in us. So the angels are sent to, to minister to the inheritance that is found in us. Once again, positionally, they are in a place of servitude. Jesus is the one who is the heir. He's the son. They serve the ones who are going to inherit it. They serve the son. And so we see the position of Jesus, and now we're going to start to understand that we are also going to be positioned with Jesus because of what he's done. You see, that's why God became man, so that he could redeem man. That was the plan. It wasn't, it wasn't just so that he could just identify with us. It was so that he could save us, so that he could buy us back. By one man, sin entered into the world. By the man Christ Jesus, it has now been redeemed. As the first Adam fell, the last Adam, did not fall, but purchased us back. 
And so we see the dynamics of God becoming flesh and what that had to do. It had to be a man who could buy back mankind, who could buy that treasure in that field. And you and I are the inheritance that he speaks about here. And so, in conclusion to the first chapter, Hebrews is talking about Jesus is better than. He is God stamped in human flesh. He's better than the angels. He is God among us. And that's going to be his theme throughout this chapter. And it's going to be important for us to understand these things, especially as we try and, and move forward in our active and living life with Christ. We can become sidetracked with rules and regulations and things that we do and mistake the efforts that we do from the God who we do them for. You understand what I'm saying? We can become involved in the legalistic aspects of if I do this, I'm good, instead of I have to connect to God through the person of Jesus. Jesus has done what is necessary so that I could enter into the presence of God himself. And that's where we get to go. We get to go before God unashamed because of what Jesus has done and because of who Jesus was. It is sufficient for us for all time. Amen.